God's holy days, in the Bible as being important in Christ. show you uh, 
some of the conditions that this is speaking of in different language. But here in Zechariah 2, he says that Jerusalem will be measured. Uh, you measure it in order to begin building the walls. But notice the conditions in verse 4. Speak to this young man and tell him to run. This is a time when uh, there's hurry up involved. You know from Daniel that there are only 70 weeks to build Jerusalem or the walls of Jerusalem and the city. And perhaps there is even overlap there of building the temple at the same time. So once these things begin to happen, they're going to happen very rapidly. So he tells him, this young man, run and measure Jerusalem. And it shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Now, we know from many prophecies that we are headed for a time when there will be few men, compared to today, left in this nation, and very few cattle. In fact, the price of beef and all kinds of food is going up and is going to go up much more rapidly than it has been due to a lot of circumstances that are being manipulated behind the scenes like the cost of oil going up, partly because we shut down our own production and things of that nature. It's politics. And then it costs more to transport everything across the sea, through the air, or on the ground. So the prices will go up, and with manipulated weather and so on, there will be less and less food, and it will be polluted even worse than it is today. But among these people the remnant of God, under the leadership of those he will have in charge, there will be much men and cattle. Now, much men doesn't mean 300 million. He's not speaking of the nation here. He's speaking of the remnant of the church, which is made very clear throughout Haggai. Uh, For I, says the Eternal, will be to her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So he is going to manifest himself to some degree or another. His light, his glory, whether he will appear in person, we do not know. We do know he has appeared in person since his resurrection on more than one occasion. He came back to the disciples. He taught Paul in the desert and so on. So he says, you won't see me much to the disciples there just before he died. But we will see him and have some since then. So he will not be coming in his glory to take over the earth at the seventh trumpet this time. But he does say he will dwell among us and his glory will show in whatever fashion he means by that. And a fire of protection around. Is that some fire he kindles? Or is that volcanic activity that runs other people off? Or we can speculate on what he means by that. But the bottom line is, he, by some type of fire, is going to protect his people. So this is something that is obvious 
to those who try to attack his people. They can't get through. And obvious to his people who will be behind that wall of fire, whatever it is, being protected. And then he says, I've scattered you abroad, which he did when he spewed out the church. And then he says in verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So his people will have uh, the responsibility of getting out of the middle of Babylon. He tells us in Micah 4 very clearly to come out of the cities and go dwell in the wilderness, and there you will be delivered. So the same verbiage here, and of course as well in Isaiah 48 and in Jeremiah 50 and 51 and other places. And then he says, anybody that tries to touch at you touches the apple of his eye, and he's going to protect his orchard. He says he'll shake his hand upon them. And then he tells us in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. Now, that's when the name Emmanuel will come into full play. We're kind of between. I know he is with us here. He is guiding and leading what we are being taught and what we're understanding. So he is here with us, but it's going to be in a much more obvious way and closer than it is this very day. Uh, because Emmanuel means God with us, whereas Jesus means God is salvation. God is salvation is a more general term that can be applied not only to us, but unto others as their order of resurrection comes. But God with us is very specific, and that's what he's referring to here when he will come and dwell with us. And he says, many nations shall be joined to the eternal in that day, shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now notice in chapter 3, he talks about signs and wonders up in verse 8, and then in verse 10, this is the time of Joshua and Zerubbabel, the leadership of the two witnesses. In that day, says the eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So it shows much men and cattle, so there'll be a lot of cattle, and here you'll have the vine and the fig tree. So while the earth is going through great famine and war, his remnant people will have plenty. That's what the vine and the fig tree symbolize. And the cattle, of course, goes along with that. So I wanted to preface going to some other scriptures that tie in with this, with this particular one, because the, the context is so obviously talking premillennial, during the remnant, temple, Jerusalem being measured and built, and the two witnesses with us. And these conditions are extant at that time, clearly here in Zechariah 2 and 3. Now let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah. Now he starts this book by, with a great burden about how God is upset with his people, and that applied both to the church and to the world around us. 
Some in the church are repenting. Uh, essentially, nobody in the world is at this time. Uh, so he's talking, first of all, to the church as we've been over so many, many times. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the last days, not after them, but in them, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and the nations will flow to it. Now, his remnant people are scattered through all the nations. So it will be people from many nations who come. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, end of verse 3, and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. So tells us in Jeremiah 31 that his watchmen will stand on the mountains in Ephraim and proclaim from Zion the truth of God. So Zion that is spoken of there is obviously in Ephraim. And nobody has called Israel in the Middle East Ephraim yet that I know of. It's to everybody on earth, basically, it's the Jews, Judah. And nobody else seems to know where the ten lost tribes are, except a few. So in this context, he's saying, enter into the rock, verse 10, and hide you in the dust for fear of the eternal and for the glory of his majesty. And then he goes on to talk about how man will be humbled and he will tear everything down, uh, consummated by the seven last plagues of the day of the Lord. So let's go on to chapter 3. Uh, Well, let's go on down almost to four. He talks about the conditions in the nation and how it's all coming apart. Women and children rule over us and so on. And the men are wusses. It, those in verse last two verses of chapter 3, Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. That's speaking here now of this nation, Ephraim. Now, in that day, at that time, see, there's still warfare going on and the nation is falling. So from the context, we can understand the time element here. Still war going on. The millennium hasn't started yet. Okay? With that in mind, then, go to chapter 4. And in that day... When our mighty men are falling. Now doesn't he tell us in Jeremiah 50 that people will flee ahead of the army that is invading, asking, how do I get to Zion? So the time element is still prior to the millennium and at the beginning of the destruction of this country by its invasion. That day shall seven women take hold of one man saying, We will eat our own bread, wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Who is going to escape? The remnant of the church. Who is the branch of the Lord? 
He says there in Zechariah 3, he will use those signs and wonders I just referred to to reveal his servant, the branch. That's the Rebbevel, who will be the primary leader of the remnant of the church. And seven women are the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Those churches take hold of that man. Uh, Isaiah 41 talks about how he will plant seven trees in the wilderness. So there will be elements of all seven of the churches who gather. So the churches of Revelation aren't just nose to tail from what we've called Ephesus in the apostolic age down through Laodicea at the end. Now there may be a nose to tail fulfillment of that. But when he gives the message in the book of Revelation, that is an end-time prophecy. And he's talking about all seven of those eras being involved now. Go through there. They don't have to be seven with specific names necessarily. There are different attitudes there. And you can go through and you might find your own attitude in two or three or seven of them. You know, there's, there's things there that we can all learn from. But overall, there are some with a specific set of attitudes and others with other attitudes. So he's dealing with those. They will have been flattened, spewed out. Now they will come seeing that the branch is doing signs and wonders, and that's where Christ is working. So... People from all seven churches, then, are going to come to where the remnant is. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So it is going to be a holy people that God is working with at that time. And then it says this will happen when he's washed away the filth of the daughter of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. So he is purging the church of those things right now. Some are willing to be purged, some are not. The ones who are willing will show up and they'll be part of the holy people. And he will create upon every dwelling in place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now we just read in Zechariah 2, he'll be a wall of fire around. He adds some detail here. Same time element as our nation is falling, a cloud and smoke by day. That's a protection. And a flaming fire by night, that also is a protection. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat. So there will still be heat in the desert during that time. But he is going to put a canopy over to protect his holy remnant from the heat. 
You won't need air conditioning, swamp coolers, because you have protection from the heat. And for a place of refuge, Zion is the place of refuge all through the Bible. And for a covert from storm and from rain. No cold winds, no hot winds, and you won't even get wet outside for that period of time. Now, does that mean we're without water for all those years? No. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? It was sub-irrigated. Water came up from the ground, watered the plants, watered the trees. Adam and Eve didn't have to worry about rain. Remember, they were naked. They didn't have to worry about rain or sun or wind or any of those things. It was taken care of. It was a perfect environment. Always the right temperature, day and night. So they didn't need clothes. God had the thermostat set at 72 or whatever it was. And that's where it stayed. Because Eden was protected. Now what he's telling you is that he's going to give his church, his remnant, that same kind of protection. I do think that we shall probably continue to wear clothes. I hope so. As old as I am. Uh, but... Uh, I think that's the case, since they, they did not understand good and evil. We do. And so, therefore, we still need clothing. But he will be taking care of us. Let's go on to chapter 6. Uh, God wanted somebody to carry the message, and he says, who are we going to ask? Who's going to go? And Isaiah said in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, Nobody here is qualified. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He'd had a vision of all this. And then the seraphim came, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar of God. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. So, yes, he was a man who had sinned, who had unclean lips. Well, God forgave it. He took care of the problem, just as he is with the church, because we are not, at this point, holy. We're still self-righteous. He tells us there in Isaiah 54, their righteousness will be of me. His righteousness will supplant our self-righteousness. Just as this coal took away Isaiah's sin. And I heard the voice of the Eternal saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Now, after he had experienced this thing with the angel and saying, your sin is gone, then he was confident and bold enough in God to say, I was pulling my hand down before, but now that I've been cleansed, here am I, send me. 
Now, I hope that we are coming to the point that God is purging us and cleansing us and making us acceptable. Remember, he said in Isaiah 52, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So we are to be right now in the cleansing process. He even says of Joshua there in chapter 3 of Zechariah, I have cleansed and given white robes. So Joshua is a type of, not just himself there, but of all of us who are in that administration to be cleansed and made pure before God so that we can build his temple and build Jerusalem. So hopefully we'll come to the point where we have been cleansed enough and realize in our own mind that by the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God, we can raise our hand and say, here am I, send me. I want to help build the temple. I want to help build Jerusalem. I want to be a part of the work of God. And that's what it says there in Haggai, is that they came willingly and ready to work. Sitting back, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not good enough for this. No, accept his deliverance. Accept his mercy. Because none of us on our own are qualified to do anything for God. It is his righteousness. Okay. Now let's go on down in this chapter, verse 9. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. You got eyes, you got ears, but you're not getting it. And he says, Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. So God is saying here to the people of the nation, when is he? We'll get to that a little later on in the sermon. Because there is a time when he will. Then said I, Lord, how long? How long is it going to be that this people won't see and hear? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. They're not going to listen until the destruction is complete. And God doesn't want them to. He wants them to repent later in humility. And also... The Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it, in spite of this destruction of the nation, and men not hearing and not seeing, yet in it shall be a tenth, that's a remnant, one-tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. When they cast their leaves, so, so, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So he's going to start over, he says, with a tenth of what was. 
That's why the tithe of God is a tenth. Whether it's first, second, or third, or whatever it is, it's a tenth. Because God will have his tenth. And out of this church that was, he will have his tenth, who will come and be given to him, give themselves to him. That's why, overall, tithing is so important that we understand. It's not just something God exacts on us. He gives us all we have, and we give him 10% back. And what that does is create a symbolism that God is going to have his 10%. And we can be 10% of that since we were called The church was scattered, and 10% will return to work. He will have his holy tenth to work with. And in a larger picture, with the nation, he is going to have about 10% survive the Holocaust here at the end, plus taking a few out, as Ezekiel did. So a little less than 10% will return into the millennium, to be taught the truth. And then they will hear, and then they will see, and their heart will not be fat, because they will have gone through hell on earth and be ready to listen and truly hear for the first time, not just mumble words. So he will start the millennium out with 10% of Israel left over, and some Gentiles, but not 10%, less than that. Then he starts talking about the 65 years uh, that I equate to 1954, which ends in 2019. And he said Ephraim would be destroyed, that it be not a people. And from the end of 2019 forward, we have not been an organized people that could do anything but hide behind the mask and stand apart and are now beginning to die in droves as a result of the vaccination and the institution of the mark of the beast. So we are already in slavery. You have not had in the last year and a half freedom to move about anywhere you wanted, however you wanted, as you did prior to that. You've had to be covered, and now soon it will be even more restrictive because you're going to have to have a vax card in your hand or your forehead or in your wallet or wherever they put it to control what you think and where you go and what you do. It's going to be much more onerous than it has been up to this point. Much more difficult. And without that card, you will not be able to buy and sell. Can't do it. If you don't buy and sell, what happens? You starve to death. There are places in Europe right now where you can't go in a supermarket without a card. It's coming. It's not far off. What are you going to do? I'm going to pray that God count me worthy and that I be building his temple and building his city. And he has a wall of fire around me and a covert from the heat. And I won't have to worry about storm, wind, rain, fire, anything, 
or invasion from the outside because God is going to protect that project and those who are doing it. And he's going to give them conditions that are nowhere on this earth at this time. What we've read already shows that, right? Smoke and fire, clouds, covert protection. And it's right after that he talks about the king of Assyria coming in and how we're not to fear the conspiracy or confederacy, but to fear him. He is the only one who can protect us. That's through chapter 8. He's still talking about here in chapter 10 then, verse 5, O Assyria, in the rod of my anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. And verse 7, he is going to destroy the nations, not a few. We have the looming confederacy of Russia, China, Iran, various other countries who are combining behind the scenes right now and using the United Nations as one of their vehicles to come in and destroy us. That is in the works. It's happening. And now they have their people in Washington, D.C., running this nation under socialism, communism, and Nazism combined. Don't go to work. Uncle Joe will send you a check. It wasn't too long ago in this nation. It was hard to find a job. Now there's a job behind every door. Nobody wants to work. Because we're headed into and are already in communism. It will be expressed more violently soon. So it is in this context that Isaiah 11 occurs, okay? That's what we're reading about here in these first chapters. And there shall come forth, in verse chapter 11, a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow up out of his roots. Now Christ was the son of Jesse. And a branch will grow up out of his roots. Now, what has he said there in Zechariah 3? He would reveal his servant, the branch. He says, we read the other day there in Isaiah 41 or 2, 42, I think, that he will come from the north, but he's coming from the east. And he will be the signet or the flag bearer for God, it says in the last verse or two of the book of Haggai. So God is sending a leader. And it says that he laid the foundation and he will finish it in Zechariah 4. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the eternal. So he's speaking here not only of Christ, it will apply directly to Christ in the millennium. But the whole context here starts out pre-millennium. And he's raising up a branch that grows out of the roots of Christ, the son of Jesse. And the spirit of the eternal shall rest upon him. Didn't I just say, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit. So God's spirit will rest upon Zerubbabel. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the eternal. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. So this is a human who has the fear of God. 
And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Now, does that, is that Christ only? No. The two witnesses send plagues and kill many people. And out of their mouth, if anybody tries to hurt them, out of their lips shall he slay the wicked. Fire will come out of their mouths and slay the wicked. So this is something that begins prior to the millennium. Now, it carries over to the millennium with no break in sight. Because when God puts his people in Zion to protect them from the beast and false prophet, they will stay there for three and a half years and be resurrected from there, or changed, if they're still alive, at the last trump. So once God establishes these conditions for his remnant people, they will carry through with the remnant until time for the millennium, and then Christ himself will be the one who does all these things in the great final fulfillment. Zerubbabel and Joshua are just types of Christ, one being in the Moses uh, mode, the other high priest. Well, Christ is the overall leader, and he is the high priest. But all of these leaders in the meantime have been types of Christ. But that doesn't set them up above you. You also are a type of Christ. That's why, as an ambassador for Christ, you are to look like him and act like him and walk like him. Because the nations of the world will have their eyes diverted to you. I'll guarantee you the two witnesses who are the spokesmen for the group are going to go out from city to city around the world and point back at those living in Zion being protected from wind and hail and storm and rain and enemies and have much men and cattle and have a vine and fig tree, total prosperity. You will be used as an example to the whole world as a light set on a hill. If you would be like these people, God would repent and not destroy you, and you could live like they're living. But they'll say no. So he'll go through with his destruction. Then they'll be repentant. Then they'll listen for the first time. Anyway, this is speaking then with the beginning fulfillment through his leadership and his remnant. And it will then expand into the millennium with Christ himself ruling. But already we've established he's going to come and dwell with us during this period of time as well. He's going to be there. Whether he makes himself visible or not as a human, as he did before, remains to be seen. And it is not necessary for us to understand that at this point. 
but his glory will be shown to whatever degree. I will be the glory in the midst of you. So it's, it's a mini millennium, a microcosm of the millennium. Christ being there and dwelling, his glory showing, protection from all danger and comfort will be there. It will be, as we go on down, what we used to read of as the millennium only. But it comes before that. And this context shows that. Uh, Verse 5, And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So God has been preparing leadership that will give us righteous leadership. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. You don't dare put your kid in with these animals at the zoo today, but they'll be around us, and a little child can play with them and lead them and lay upon them and ride them and have wonderful communication with all these, what are today, predators. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child, unweaned child, two, three years old, shall play on the hole of the snake, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. So no snakes will be poisoned, no spiders will bite, no brown recluses rotting your skin, no goat heads, no foxtails, no tumbleweeds. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden. What a wonderful thing to point to and say, this is the way things are going to be. Your leader, Satan, and the beast and the false prophet think they're going to give you a thousand years of peace. But they're not. You're going to continue the way you are going, and you are going to die in ignominy and famine and pestilence and war. Repent, please. And then they won't. But how are you going to explain that unless there's somebody there that you can point to and say, look what God has done. He's already going to have done what I read yesterday in Isaiah 44 and 45 at this point. He's going to open the earth and give forth his treasures. The gold, the silver, the library, everything. And it's going to go from east to west around the world and everyone is going to know about it. And it's going to scare the kings and leaders of the earth spitless. So it will have already gotten their attention. And then, when they flee from that beast and false prophet, who are there to kill them all and pollute the temple, and they flee to Zion, don't go back in, go. When you see those armies gathering about the true Jerusalem, head for the mountains. And then, these conditions will occur. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, 
For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. They're going to know about this. They're going to hear about it. Now, in its final fulfillment, it will expand so that the whole earth is under the knowledge of the eternal. But in the beginning, they will hear of it. They can see it happening, but they won't believe it. So the scripture can be fulfilled in that sense. And in that day there shall be a rod of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. That's what he says about Zerubbabel, last verse of Haggai. To it shall the Gentile seek, and his rest shall be glorious. So it starts out with Zerubbabel, whom a tenth come to. Seven churches, women taking hold of one man. And then, when that portion is finished, Christ will become the ruler of the whole earth. Final fulfillment. That's the way it's going to wind up. His rest shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from all over the world. The second time. So the first time is the remnant of the church. And then when Christ comes and takes over to rule the whole earth, it will be the second time that he is gathered. And that gathering will be of the 10% of physical Israel and the Gentiles who still remain who come to live under these conditions. So he tells you right there in so much English, it happens, and then it happens again on a bigger scale. He'll set up an instrument from the nations and assemble the outcasts of Israel, gather them all together, and at that time Ephraim will not envy Judah, and Judah shall not envy or vex Ephraim. And he goes on to talk about the remnant coming, and even the Assyrian is going to come. But then you go on into a burden against Babylon in chapter 13 and other nations as we go on through through Moab and Ammon and the burden of Egypt. So he's talking still in the context about trouble coming. So when he does this, actually over three and a half years, three and a half years in Zion, but at least 70 weeks in Jerusalem building the temple and uh, Jerusalem. So that's uh, a year and what, 16 or 18 weeks, I figured. So we're talking about close to five years that this all comes to pass. Now, we've also read in Isaiah 35, at the feast, the conditions that God is going to bring. Let's go there. Uh, Here again, if you go back before this, chapter 34, he he says, Come near you nations to hear. Let the earth hear and all that is therein. Who are they going to hear? those he sends to preach. So they're still around. Uh, 
And it's beginning, verse 8, it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. And he starts this problem, uh, a fire that will not be quenched, night or day, verse 10. And some areas are going to lie waste. So this isn't the millennium with peace all over the earth yet in the context. And in chapter 35, he says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the eternal and the excellency of our God. Now, he says he's going to do that during the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant again in Zechariah 2, where he will be a wall of fire and that he will have his glory there and shall dwell with us. Talking about the same period of time. And he says, strengthen you the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. This is (laughs) premillennial. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Doesn't he tell us, he tells the people that are coming to build the temple to be strong, fear not, be of good courage, and work. Those four elements. That's essentially what this is saying right here. Be strong, don't fear, God's going to take care of you. Now why... If it was a millennium, would you fear in the first place? Why would you need to be strong? Because you had, then you will have been delivered if you're there. This is prior to that. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. It won't rain, but there will be water. Waters break forth and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, water coming from below, in the habitation of dragons, where each day shall be grass with reeds and rushes. So, ponds, streams. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. That means that there is still unclean around, but they will not be allowed to come. He tells us there in Isaiah 40, Comfort you, my people, and I will take care of them. Make a highway in the desert for them and for Christ to come. It shall be for those, the wayfaring men, those who are traveling to get there, though fools shall not uh, err therein. No lion, no ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the eternal shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow 
and sighing shall flee away. We're going to have protection during that time. And God will be there to protect. There's nothing to fear. You can have courage. You can work. But until he establishes that protection, there is danger. Says the Assyrian's going to come and try to enslave you like he did in Egypt. But he'll smite you a bit and then you will be protected. I think that may be in progress right now. It is the people of the New World Order and the rulers behind the scenes in this world who are directing what, ha- what is happening in Washington and in Australia and in Germany and all over the world to establish their one world government and everybody has to do what they say. And in one sense, they're trying to smite us on the cheek and jab us in the arm and make us their slaves until the jab kills us. They're trying to get you and me to give in to them and be their slaves, are they not? Got to wear a mask. Can't come in here and buy and sell without it. You can only have what Uncle Joe sends you. That's all you get. And if you don't have this, you can't go spend it. Can't buy and sell. Is that slavery or what? The Assyrian is jabbing at us. There are U.N. troops already in this nation. And Chinese troops. And uh, Russian troops. I've seen some of them. My son sees them all the time in Colorado Springs, near Cheyenne Mountain. They're there. They speak to you in good English, and they speak to other in, each other in good Russian. I've heard them do it at a motel restaurant. So he's going to give us those conditions if we will simply serve him and obey him. And it will be a light to the world. Now, let's get on to Isaiah 65 a little bit. We used to use this to say this was talking uh, about after everything is done. God has burned the earth up and there's nothing left, a charred place. And then he creates new heavens and new earth uh, for those who have been given eternal life. That's not what the context says at all. I went through this in the series on how exclusive is the church. Because he talks here, verse 14 of 65, Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you, the world, shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. We always looked at it as there'd be no human beings left by then. They would have either been changed or gone into the lake of fire. That's not what the Scripture says at all. Still be people around. Uh, He says in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Now, Isaiah 24 is where Ellen G. White Uh, got her doctrine, 
of a desolate earth theory. And Isaiah 24 does talk about destruction and fire and so on. And there are a couple of places, if you don't read it all, where it seems to indicate that nobody will be left alive. But if you read Isaiah 24 honestly and read all of it, it says, and few men, men left, not all destroyed in that fire. So her desolate earth theory doesn't work if she's honest with what she reads. So he's going to create the new heaven and the new earth while there are still people here. Read it. But be you glad and rejoice in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. It says there in Zechariah 1 and 2, he will yet choose Jerusalem again. And she'll be built in her own place there in Zechariah 12. The one that's over in the Middle East ain't her place. She's going to be built in her own place. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, not spirits. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more an infant of days and an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old. So there's still humans that can die. A child will live a hundred years and die. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. So they'll live a hundred years. Some will die accursed if they're disobedient, and some will be changed to spirit. Uh, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build another and another inhabit, and shall not plant and another eat. Uh, they'll not labor in vain, verse 23. The seed of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. Still babies being born. The new heavens and the new earth occur at the beginning of the millennium. When everything is made beautiful, but people will still be living and having children. This probably does not even apply to the great white throne judgment, which is when all the babies and older people will be resurrected to physical life and live a physical life. Now, it may be that it is a hundred-year period, but there's nowhere in Scripture to show that. This is talking about the millennium. Now, if he gives the baby and the old man a hundred years, then that might indicate that that's how long the great white throne judgment would be, that everybody will be given a hundred years to prove himself one way or another. That's the day we are representing today is that great white throne judgment, and I'm going to hurry and get there. But I wanted to establish, first of all, that uh, these conditions will exist. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, the ones we read before in Isaiah 11 and 35 were speaking primarily of conditions before the millennium. They will carry over into the millennium, as it clearly shows here, but the new heavens and the new earth have not occurred 
premillennial. That's when they do occur. Because it'll be a whole new world of peace and prosperity and love. And no one's going to hurt in all his uh, holy mountain. Let's nail that down in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain. Our children will be in the millennium, in the new heavens and the new earth. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. So there'll still be fleshly human people during the new heavens and new earth. Completely explodes the old doctrine we had in worldwide years ago. (coughs) Let's not go further there. Let's go to John 7 and wrap this up. (coughs) Or begin to at least. John 7. Remember the eighth day in the Feast of Tabernacles of Leviticus 24. We already read the other day. It says, keep it seven days. And the eighth day is the Sabbath. That's today. This is the eighth day we've been here. It was tacked on to the seventh. The plan of God works out in 7,000 years. <coughs> That's what the week represents. That's why creation was seven days. (coughs) But because his plan for living humans will be finished and accomplished at the end of the millennium, 7,000 years. (coughs) But there is a category of people who by that time will not have been resurrected. Christ speaks of them here in John 7. Verse 37, and in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living waters. This he spoke of the Spirit. So, There will be physical waters and springs and pools at Zion. But there will be a time when the Spirit of God begins to flow through the whole earth during the millennium. And then it's going to continue in that period of time spoken of as the last great day or the eighth day that was added. And he says, let any man who thirsts come to me. We know from many scriptures that right now he is not calling everyone. He is hardly calling any, if you consider the 8 billion or the 60 billion or whatever that have lived. Most of them have never known of God, haven't known who he was, what he does, or what he believes. Most of the population of the earth from Adam on down haven't known the true God. Most people don't know him at all. Most nations do not know of him. Most Christians do not know of him. They have a false Christ. They worship the devil and don't know it. Just like the Pharisees, who were the best Jews around, worship the devil and didn't know it. You worship you, know not what, he said. So most people have never, ever known God 
or known his ways. There's not a Protestant church out there today that claims to be Christian that has a clue of God's ways. Other than we all love each other and accept Jesus. That's all they know. But they don't know what that means. They have no clue what it means. But here he's talking of a time when any man can come. Doesn't have to have a special calling. He's going to be calling them all. That's not happening right now, is it? (laughs) Not in any way. All right, let's go to Revelation 20, and we'll get some explanation on that, and we'll end this up here. Revelation 20. 1 Corinthians 15.23 talks about an order of resurrection. He only carries it there as far as Christ being the first of the first fruits, and then those who are changed at his coming. So there's an order, him and then the first fruits. Uh, but he does mention an order. And something is added to that here in the book of Revelation to show that not only is there one of Christ and then the first resurrection, but another one in addition to that in the order. So here we have an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. He lays hold of Satan and binds him a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years shall be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season, a little while. So during the millennium, he will have been seized at the beginning, put in jail, solitary confinement, away from the world for a thousand years. Can't affect man anymore. Then Christ can convert the people who came through the seven last plagues during the millennium and give them those beautiful conditions of Isaiah 65, 35, and 11. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. It says, we'll reign with them as kings and priests a thousand years, there in Revelation 5.10. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. That was, goes all the way back to apostolic times and even before. And for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. We must be very careful not to take the mark of the beast. And its precursor has to be the jab. It has to be. Because by it already they're saying, we'll not allow you to buy and sell unless you have this shot. They're going to institute it more and more as time goes on. And that's the conditions he's talking about here. You can't do what your head tells you you want to, and you can only do with your hand what they say you can do. So whether it's in your forehead or your hand is a chip, or whether it's a shot in your arm with the barcode, uh, doesn't really matter because it'll control your head and your hand. Now, it may be literally in your head and your hand. I'm not saying it's not. But prepare for the thought that it's possible it's symbolic there that it controls what you can do. 
So they'll live and reign with Christ a thousand years. That's speaking of 144,000 at the first resurrection. But the rest of the dead live not again till a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection had occurred, and nobody else is raised up for a thousand years. That's, that was the first resurrection. And we know from Revelation 7 and 14 and other places that there are only 144,000 in that. That mass innumerable multitude comes later. And that's what it says here. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, after the millennium then, when the 144,000, the bride of Christ, had been ruling, when the thousand years are expired, that's the end of the 7,000-year plan. Six days of man's rule and Satan's, 1,000 years of Christ's rule over all the people on earth. When that is over, Satan must be loosed out of his prison for a short while. And shall go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle like the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, compassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's the new Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So at the end of the millennium, there has to be a final wrap-up. There will be a lot of people still alive. And Satan will be loosed, and he will deceive a lot of people very rapidly. And they will come against God and be devoured by fire. Now, they will have had a chance, won't they, during the millennium. This could be the end of them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Beast and false prophet won't be there forever. They'll burn up. They're human. And that's, that is in italics there. Uh, were is a better translation. And his torment will be forevermore because of what he's done. And it is after that then, said the rest of the dead live not till a thousand years were over. Who could that be? Everybody that's ever lived that weren't in the first resurrection. That was only 144,000. So this goes all the way back from Adam and Eve forward to all those people who have never had a chance at salvation. Those in the millennium will have had it. But it's everybody from Adam and Eve up until the end of the last plagues of all those people who have died without true knowledge of God in His way. Great white throne. That symbolizes judgment. <clears throat> Him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. He was the central character here. And I saw the dead, small and great, Stand before God, and the books were opened. That's the Bible. These books, 66 of them. The books were opened. And another was, book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, the 144,000 are written in the book of life, and they're resurrected in the first resurrection, or changed at the last trump. 
And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now that implies right there that there's a period of time in which they have to do their works. Because there are a lot of aborted babies who never had any works. There are a lot of people who died when they were one to three years old who had no works. There are a lot of people who lived a hundred years old who never knew about God, maybe grew up in a pagan society somewhere and never even heard of God. How are you going to judge them by their works from the Bible? There's nothing to judge with. They haven't done anything. So, they are given a period of time to live. It says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So he gives them time. If they were aborted or died as a baby, they're given time to grow up and show whether they will live according to God's way with the devil bound and gone forever. He won't be around, and the sinners will not be around. They'll be given a wonderful opportunity to obey God and be saved out of it and turned into his children eternally and forevermore. I have a lot of relatives who have died that I knew, who never knew about the truth, never knew about God, really. They'll all come up then. They'll have their chance then. God is fair. He gives everyone a chance. Not two or three or five chances, but one. To live a human life with the knowledge of Him and show whether they will follow it or not. They're judged by the books. And if they obey God, they'll be written in the book of life. <coughs> Judged according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, burned up, and forgotten. So they're given a period of time, which very well may be a hundred years, to learn about God, to prove whether they'll live His way under those conditions. <coughs> and if they do, their name's written in the book of life. And when the third resurrection occurs, when all the <coughs> people from Adam and Eve on down, who are not written in the book of life, will be cast into the lake of fire. And if there are any from this era or before who died having lost their opportunity, and there may be a few, they'll be resurrected in this group as well. And be destroyed. So God will have given everybody on earth a chance. So this day is not a part of the seven days of the 7,000 years. It was tacked on. And clearly that was done in Leviticus 23. Keep it seven days, but the eighth day is a holy convocation. So the plan of salvation is complete at the end of 7,000 years. But you have all these people who were never part of that plan because they died without knowledge of the true God in His way. They are tacked on at the end to be given a chance. So this is the day that all those aborted babies and people who died without God 
are going to come alive and be given an opportunity to live and love and be children of God. What a wonderful thing. See, God kills an awful lot of people here at the end and allows Satan to. But these people died without true knowledge of God and they'll come up at that time and everything will be peaceful. No Satan, no evil society, and they'll have every good opportunity to obey God and live. So this day is not about you and me. This day is about us helping rule over those people and teach them the way of God so they can be in the kingdom of God. God is a successful God. He is not going to be a failure. Most people who have ever lived have not been saved. And the Protestants will teach you, unless you come here and accept Jesus and get saved, you're going to hell. No, they're not. They're going into the grave, and they'll come up and be taught the truth. Most of your relatives, most people you've ever known, all those babies you mourned over who were miscarriages or died before they ever had a chance to live and love and learn God's way. They're all coming up on the day that we're keeping today in symbolism. It'll be a literal day, and they'll have every chance. So that's the end of the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day then, formally. doesn't end till sundown, but that's it for our formal part. But I would like to say that I deeply appreciate all the peace and the cooperation and the love and everything that has gone into this. There was a lot of preparation by people, planning, organizing ahead of time. There's been a lot of cooking and cleaning and singing and all kinds of things that have made this so pleasant for all of us. And I do deeply appreciate the efforts of everybody to serve each other and to help each other and to be what we should be. So thank you for coming before God to worship Him and doing it in a way that has been, I hope, very pleasing to Him overall. Oh, we've had our little things. Everybody does have their little things, their little attitudes, their little whatever. But those are small compared to the overall worship of God and service of Him. And we're not supposed to take offense either way, any, in any case, for any reason, if we're his children, and we're not to give offense for any reason. But as humans, eh, little things happen. But we get over them because we're bigger than that, aren't we? We're bigger than that because of the Spirit of God, which can help us overcome and grow and be together here for eight days in 99% peace and joy and happiness and Thank you. Those of you who are traveling, be safe going home and be in contact. We love you.